D20s. Alignment grids. Several things. Several things. Hey, everybody. Would you like to hear what I hate about D&D and also what some other guy hates about D&D, too? Yeah, I mean, you're on the internet, so I assume that's what you want. <laughs> yeah, the things I hate about D&D are as follows. Anyone who plays it, anyone who writes for it, and myself. Okay, John, you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also hate anyone who plays it, anyone who writes for it, and you. <laughs> Good. Well, I am the guy who sucks. It's true. And I've got depression, and together we fight crime. <laughs> but not very well. I mean, really badly. We're like, hey, hey, don't do a crime. Wait, Unless stop. It's... Hey. No. Oh, no, wait, hold on. That's a cool crime. Do that cool crime. <laughs> do cool crimes. That's our <laughs> motto. Cool crimes are any crime that you do while gay, or if you have sunglasses on. Or both. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely both. That's a double cool crime. Yeah, if you've got gay sunglasses on, then you're doing double cool crimes. Well, no, that's that, that makes your crime accompanied by coolness, because it's not you that's gay, it's your sunglasses. I don't know, That's this isn't about D&D. Hi, I'm Jeff. <laughs> I'm John. And we agreed to do these as part of a pre-sale for a book that came out over a year ago. Yes, indeed. We made a promise and... Let no one say that we don't eventually keep it. <laughs> By God. <laughs> Still, I mean, the story does go that the first one of these we recorded, and then I got sick and went to the hospital, and then just forgot that we recorded it for like six months. Oh, yeah. Life happened. And mm -hmm. uh, now life is really happening all over the place, but now, you know, we got time. Nothing but time. Although I am actually immensely busy on other projects that we also have because we took so long to do this that now i'm crazy busy with the next book yay life does go on though and what we do on this show is we wrote up a big list of everything that we don't like about D D, and that's not just current modern fifth edition player's handbook D D, but just D D the concept going all the way back to 1974 right up to the modern day any little thing we can think of that we hate about this game and the cultures it has spawned and the tropes that it has produced. And then we just talk about them. That's right. We just talk about it. We just get in there and we talk about it. Are we going to fix any of these problems? Fuck no. That's not our job. <laughs> yeah. We don't get paid to fix D and D. No, I mean, we ought to get paid. I mean, do you think I wouldn't even be open to considering that now, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. If D&D, yeah. if, like, if Wizards came up and was like, hey, you want to fix d and I'm like, oh, sweet. You mean I get to just, like, fire anyone I want to and hire other people? <laughs> hey, you uh, you want to come on board and fix d and I don't know. You want to fire Mike Merles? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just give me carte blanche to do just whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> yeah, uh, I need to give actually pretty good RPG developer Ray Winninger a swirly now because he tried to bring Mike Merles right back onto the team. What the hell, guys? It's not that hard. You don't need a specific mediocre white dude. There are so many to choose from. I mean, a that's why you field. brought me on here, a mediocre exactly. white dude. But there's two of us. Added up to, to together, we fight crime. <laughs> uh, all right, man. Do you want to get into these? Number 44, 
Uh, editions not cleaning up crap from previous editions. Yeah. I mean, normally called sacred cows, there are a lot of things that are just garbage that manages to slip through editions that just yeah. slips through because it's there and no one cares. Yeah. Now, notably, this this was a really big deal in the transition from first to second, and then a, again from second to third. Uh, fourth was a hiccup that shaked up a lot, of, uh, shook up a lot of shit. But uh, in first to second, you had all these things that I wouldn't even call secret cows because no one fucking used them, and no one even knows what they are. And if you tell people they were in there today, they'll just be like, "No, they weren't. That's stupid. <laughs> That's not a rule. No one did that." And you're like, "Well, yes, it was, and no, no one did." Yeah, you had all that shit, like all the monsters having specific psionic attack and defense modes so that you didn't have to think too hard if you introduced psionics into the game later, or racial level caps, or uh, uh, you know, alignment restrictions, or paladin codes, which were kept in from one game to the next, not because they were interesting or dynamic, but just because they were in the previous edition. Yeah, it was just, well, we're making a new thing, and you know, I'm not specifically changing this, so I guess it just also goes in. Yeah, and then there's a new version of this, uh, which you would see in 5th edition, because again, 4th edition was kind of a hiccup, uh, of bringing shit back for no reason. Bringing broken, useless shit that they don't even want in their own game back, just because they were trying to appeal to the kind of person who would give a fuck. Yeah, well. I think the no the most notable example of that is alignment. 4th uh, edition did definitely kind of go, you know... Alignment's been a bad influence on everybody for a long time. We're going to reduce it to just five alignments, and those will just be role-playing tools. They will have absolutely no bearing whatsoever on gameplay. There will be no rules that interact with them, no ways to forcibly change them. They will have no effect on the game. They're just suggestions. Yeah. Fifth edition was like, nah, back to the nine-point nine grid. Everyone loves that fucking nine-point grid. How else are you going to make memes about Batman? Right? There's no other Gotta way get... to make a meme about Batman. Got to get that shit in there. Got to put in potions that forcibly change your alignment. Got to put in all kinds of alignment nonsense because people fucking love alignment. Hell yeah. You got to have spells that care about it. You got to have magic items that care about it. Mm-hmm. And then once they did that and realized, oh, right, we took that out for a good reason. They went on Twitter. This is, I think, Crawford who did this and was like, uh, those alignment rules are really a matter of dm opinion you, we, we wouldn't force you to enforce them everything about them of course is up to dm discretion uh which ultimately I, i'm sure dm discretion was one of the previous 43 of these but it's it's an excuse to not write good rules well yeah it's always just well we can wash our hands of this because you know if you have a problem with it just don't do it and you're like but that's your job is to make things that should be used. And and straight up, as long as Adventurer's League exists, you can't just justify rules that are bad by saying, eh, don't use them, because Adventurer's League gonna use them. Well, yeah, like, if I want to, I could go ahead and just say hit points don't exist anymore. Who cares? But that doesn't matter, because it will still be used. <laughs> Absolutely true. So there... There we have it. I mean, that one's pretty straightforward. It's just, if you're going to constantly be releasing editions, and granted, I know they are not constantly releasing editions nowadays because they are lazy, and because podcasts seem to like 5th edition just fine. Well, I uh, mean, but it, basically, it was the edition that happened to be out when podcasting and streaming took off, so there it is. 
I mean, ultimately, here's the basic rundown. There should be a good reason to release a new edition. Uh, a, a, a huge fucking step backwards is not a very good one. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the number uh, 45. Number 45 is Vancey and casting, which, God damn, I hate so much. I think I would say that probably one or two orders of magnitude more people know the term Vancey and casting than know shit about the Jack Vance dying Earth novels. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> I assume that most people are like, wait, Vancey and is actually a reference to something and not just a name <laughs> for it. Was there a guy named Vance who wrote the spell system for AD&D? What are we talking about? Yeah. The whole, you have a spell and it's in your head and then you cast it and it's no longer in your head thing is interesting from a sort of narrative point of view. But when it comes to game rules, it's just, <laughs> it's just kind of annoying and bad. Yeah, no, it. It's uh, it's specifically annoying, and it's endlessly abusable, and ultimately, you can kind of tell that D&D writers have not liked it for a very long time, because when you look at the early days of Vancey and casting, it was actually restrictive. Like, it mattered. Like, you had to be careful and make choices, and you weren't really allowed to know what spells you were allowed to learn in the first place. And you had to memorize them and be very careful with what you memorized at the beginning of the day so you didn't waste a spell slot and die as a result. But over the years, each each edition comes out and they go, well, that's not fun. We'll just reduce a few more of these restrictions. And it's a certain point where you're like, why not just take the fucking fancy and casting thing out? It's just a weight around your neck. You don't need it. Oh, yeah. I specifically just don't like fancy and casting because it feels very specific to the source material it's coming from and nothing else yeah i will go ahead i will freely admit that while i am fully aware of the jack vance uh novels i've never read one but my understanding is that the uh, books don't have virtually anything to do with the D D spell model that even though yes the characters must spend or the, the characters of the novel have to spend their evening like priming and prepping a spell that they can cast the next day they don't go around being like well i have 11 memorized spells it's usually like i know maybe two yeah and that was one of those things where flavor wise it's interesting to say like oh i've essentially like bagged a spell in my brain and later on i can take it out of the bag and throw it at stuff like that's a neat idea and would be cool if Everything else in the game was sort of built around using that as a thing, but nothing else is, and it just feels out of place. Well, yeah, and notably, the fact that it's directly pulled from some novel series that no one's ever read is going to... to oh, I'm sorry, some people have read it. Fine, don't email me. Um, huh. But <laughs> it feels weird that it's tacked into this generic role-playing game system where you're just like, well, this is basically... Tolkien plus 40k or plus fantasy with the serial numbers filed off uh, plus or minus 40 years of repetitive sacred cow history. Uh, and we have always kept these novels that no one read that were written in the 60s and are still in here for some reason. Yep. So there you go. Not great. Switch them out for something. Uh, perhaps some sort of at will encounter daily utilities. I and uh, Just perhaps. if I was randomly kicking ideas up, up and down the table. <laughs> Oh, there you yeah. go. Number 46. What history did to the halfling? 
Uh, so this is one of mine, and oh, what I'm basically going at here is that I spent a lot of my childhood thinking that the halfling and the gnome were really cool ideas. And in fact, the, what history did to the gnome is number 49, so you might as well just roll it in there. Uh, I liked them. They were fun little demi-human races that had cool stories written about them. Uh, that said, almost every game I played in as a kid, the DM would be aggressively against the existence of these things because the books wrote them as halflings don't like doing shit. They're just fat little turds that like to stay at home. Well, yeah. And, and gnomes. I mean, gnomes were basically banned in D&D for me for a while because, again, the people running my game were like, gnomes are dumb. They're just little pl- prankster stupid idiots, and they don't belong in a serious fantasy setting. In their defense, they may have heard the way you talk when you are pretending to be a gnome. <laughs> in, you have a- in defense of that... It's rad. You have this one very specific gnome voice that you go to immediately. I don't even think you think of it as your gnome voice. You usually kind of do it as like a badger thing, right? Oh, no. It is the gnome voice. Right. And it's the voice you use to speak to badgers. Oh, right. That does make sense, because gnomes often do speak to badgers, uh, as their early history did indicate. They were just crappier dwarves with dumb hats that could talk to a couple of burrowing mammals. That's right. Mm Mm-hmm. I can talk and, uh, to mammals. There it is. There's Let's that. Let's all go have a party with badgers. That's the stuff. That's the that's the banning voice. <laughs> the banning word. Uh, ultimately, the problem is that early editions were written by people who didn't necessarily want you to play as these things. Uh, there's a reason there were all those level caps and weird restrictions on on uh, playing as the demi-humans in early D&D, and that reason largely is that early D&D was married to the Greyhawk system, which uh, was humanocentric. It was it was written to specifically be, this is mostly about humans and horses and heraldry and bullshit, and I guess if you're a real big piece of shit about everything, you might be allowed to play an elf a little. Huh. So the early editions were written like, don't play a halfling, halflings are dumb, and then a lot of people internalize that. And However... For those, <laughs> The next thing, number 47, is Kender, and Kender are the actual things that people should hate, because Kender are bullshit. (laughs) Kender are bullshit. It is a Uh, codified way for the (laughs) player to be like, well, look, I know I'm stealing from the party and everyone hates it, but I have to. Right. So, I mean, that's going to come up again in a little while as well, but Kender were written with just the least critical eye for how players play the game of any species there's ever been. Where they were just like, oh, these guys are just childlike morons. They don't understand what's going on around them. They're constantly innocent, and they love to play pranks. And it's like, great, you put the Lost Boys in the game. Oh, but you can't get mad at them because it's just the way they are. They just don't understand the concept of personal property. They don't have accountability. Their people never invented that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah Ken- kender is the kind of halfling that it's actually okay to be really mad about they were a bad idea granted most of Dragonlance was a bad idea but kender kender and gully dwarves kender and gully dwarves and draconians <laughs> uh kender and gully dwarves and draconians and tannis half elven are the worst things about Dragonlance, and we can move on from there yeah i think raceland 
<laughs> oh, right, Raceland. No, man, Raceland's rad. He's a dark, edgy, brooding motherfucker. Did, did you a... see? He's got fucking hourglasses in his eyes. <laughs> he sold his soul for rad power. And also, everywhere he goes, there's an Incubus song playing. Oh, dude, sweet. Yeah, I guess you're you're right there. I, if I had to pick actual worst things from Dragonlance, it'd probably be what? Tasselhoff, Burfoot, and that fucking dwarf? Yeah, I mean, basically. What's his name? Grunchabald Vaughn won't get in a boat? I hate yeah, that sure, guy. Yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, he's the worst dwarf. Speaking of the problem with Kender, number 48, inter-party conflict and theft, or intra, not one party stealing from another. That would be rad. <laughs> yeah, the... <laughs> The entire idea of the I'm going to play a rogue and steal from the party or I'm playing an enchanter or an illusionist and I make someone fall in love with someone else like the I'm going to fuck with my own party thing is it's weird because I know people that would know nothing about like the culture of D&D &D and still do that. And it's just something where some people are like, oh, yeah, this is obviously a game of fucking the other people at the table. Right. No, that's, whether that's literally or metaphorically. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it is a social experience. Absolutely. But no, I, that is one of my easiest tells to someone being a new player in D&D. &D. If like you if they don't want to announce, hey, I've never played this game before. The way they usually are going to tell you is that they are going to try and do shit inside the party. They're going to be like, oh, are we camping for the night? Great. I wait till everyone else falls asleep. And, and you're like, you've never played this before, have you? Yeah. It's it's a thing that I feel when you've played for a while and you understand that RPGs are a game of cooperative storytelling that unless there is a very compelling story reason for you to create conflict within the group just saying oh i wait until the fighter falls asleep and i steal his sword and hide it is like great you're slowing down the game and making everything suck yeah basically this one boils down into my usual rules for be or, or tropes of beginner D, D players that i always have written down somewhere or other which is that stealing from the party is basically a way to earn the spotlight for yourself uh, almost all of them are done via negative behaviors, uh, stealing things from the party, shape-shifting so you look like them, uh, forcing them into unwanted lies or pulling their pants down, that kind of thing. All of it is basically like, hey, everybody, look what I'm doing. My character is doing something right now. Let's all look at that. And it, it kind of belies a, a, a misunderstanding that the basic point of the game is you'll get your turn. Well, yeah, and I mean, especially it, for people that haven't played RPGs but have played, like, board games or video games or things like that and the idea of well i'm trying to win so we got some treasure and if i steal more treasure from someone that just means that i i'm winning yeah that one's especially dumb in this day and age i was i was reading some story about that in some forum a while back about a guy who was trying who would bog down every adventure they were in by arguing that he should get a, a lion's share of gold at the end of each one of their adventures or quests or whatever in fifth edition. And they were all like eighth level. What the fuck is he spending it on? Yeah. No one gives a shit. It doesn't matter. So it, it's just one of those things that crops up where you kind of get it in your head that, Oh, gold is good. I need that. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. So there you have it. 
Uh, number 49 was What History Did the Gnome? Covered. Number 50. This is part of an ongoing debate. This is a, a current fight in the D&D discourse sphere. Uh, species basically just being photoshopped humans. Uh. So this one really boils down to people seeking out wild differences between the species that you can play as in a D&D game, and they want an elf to actually have some kind of real differences to it, something that st- makes them d- directly and, and uh, physically stand out from, from humans. But what they really get is just, oh, they're 5% better at dexterity attacks, and they don't fall asleep as easily, and you should play them as weird and aloof, and they live a long time, but who cares, because the campaign isn't going to be set over 700 years. Yeah, well, there is that. Yeah, so a lot of the demi-human races, such as they're they're called, kind of feel like just human and or blank human. Yeah, I mean, most of it is just human, but all of them have to follow one specific type of personality. Right, it's human, but monoculture. Yeah. So you got, like, short humans, but they're greedy. Oh, good, dwarves, got it, you figured it out, great. Or, yep. or uh, skinny humans that like magic and live a long time. Great, you made elves. It's, and, uh, uh, it's just annoying it, that it's not like... Oh, this is an entire interesting, cool, diverse species that has something about them that very much sets it apart. It's just, ah, nah, they're basically just humans if they only had one thing they cared about. Yeah, I was in a big random argument with some guy the other day where it boiled down to, to, apparently, there's a book that Wizards of the Coast is planning to release inside of the next couple of months where they're going to remove racial penalties to things like kobolds and orcs because they get intelligence penalties. Uh, make it so that no monster is, or no sentient humanoid monster is just plain evil, because that's kind of some essentialism bullshit. And they're going to make it so all the stat modifications are floating, and you can put them wherever you want to, to kind of reflect that maybe just because you're an elf doesn't mean you're automatically dexterous. You may have come from an elf culture that prizes something else. Yeah. And the argument that the guy was hitting me with was, well, that's that's removing diversity. That's saying that everyone can just put their their stats where they want them, and and uh, that elf culture has always rewarded elves for being graceful and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I was thinking, it is not the opposite of diversity. It, it's opening diversity up. You're labeling elves as existing inside of a monoculture that just cranks out elf after elf who happens to be 5% more accurate with bows than a start, equivalent starting first-level human. And that's not that exciting as a difference between humans and elves. Yeah. I mean, having something that is an actual difference rather than just, you know, maybe something is a bonus to a thing. And if you don't want it, then too bad. Like if I want to be just a wizard and I'm like, Oh, well, I guess I got bonus to decks that I don't care about. So sure. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, I get that. Ultimately it's not so much that the free floating, attribute bonus is going to fix D&D all of a sudden. Really, the best thing to do with attributes in D&D is just to get the fuck rid of them. Ah. But uh, making them free-floating really does open up your cultural play, where you can be like, well, my character's an elf, but he wasn't really raised in elven society. He's from a human city. He grew up in a human household, was raised by, like, a Fagin type, and so he's got different stat bonuses than a regular elf because, culturally, he's not an elf. I mean, and uh, honestly, even just saying, yeah, my uh, my elf is a wizard, 
he's a nerd that spent all of his time reading books. Yeah, he'll trip over his own feet. He didn't go run prancing around the forest shooting bows as a kid. No, that that is absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, this is great for beginners. This is good for beginner play because you always get newbies who are like, well, I want to play as a dragonborn wizard. And then the DM has to be like, hmm. It's maybe a role-playing challenge to play a non-optimal wizard. <laughs> and first of all, no, it isn't. And second of all, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. There you go. Huh. All right. Number 50. Oh, 51. Excuse me. This is uh, taking it way back to 1976. <laughs> uh <laughs> Uh, the note, the uh, number 51 just says notes on women and magic, which is a little sense of what the history of D and D in terms of how it treated female characters and, 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 uh, women players, uh, has never been great. No, not really. Given that, you know, just right out the gate, they're like, oh, well, you know, sure. Ladies can be, you know, as good as men in some areas, I mean, uh, not fighters, of course. <laughs> uh, also, you don't have charisma, you have beauty, because, you know, ladies are just pretty. They don't actually have any sort of personality. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the 1976 Wizard Magazine uh, introduction to how to put distaff gamers into D&D, as they describe them, uh, was basically, here, take charisma out and give them beauty and give them the following roles for their stats, which are trash. It's like, oh, strength is a D8 plus a D6. Yep. Uh, and beauty is rolled on two D10. Yep. <laughs> which is important because as you scroll your way through the article, you'll eventually realize there's a, there's a cross-comparison chart in there for how gorgeous a woman has to be to seduce a do another species. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Ugh. I think my favorite thing about the women's race, men's race thing in that chart uh, is that humans aren't called humans in it. They're called women and men. <laughs> so, for example, for a woman to successfully seduce a man, which is the obviously assumed human, they need to be at least an 11 on charisma, which means that they have to be above average to to bang each other. And I got to tell you, folks, I've seen ugly people fuck each other. It's how I live my life. <laughs> I've seen it. I've been there. I just realized it was very insulting to all my partners. I, what I should have said is, I get away with it. That's better. <laughs> what I should have said is, I am a voyeur for ugly people fucking. <laughs> it gets expensive, but trust me, it's worth it. Mm, mm, mm. No, there's this gross cross-comparison chart where it's like, if an orc would like to seduce a human man, she shall have to roll a, a 15 beauty in order to do so. Ugh. And I think my favorite thing on this is the... You remember how in AD&D they gave, like, names to every level when you were gaining levels as a character? Yeah. The thief list, where you start as a level one wench, <laughs> and then when you get a thousand experience, you are now a level two hag. Yeah, god damn, that was awesome <laughs> shit. Witch, witch, hag, jade, succubus, adventurous, soothsayer, one I'm not going to say, Sybil. <laughs> That's rough. And then the one where you, uh, the fighter one where you make it as far as Valkyrie and then have to give that up to become War Lady. Valkyrie's better than War Lady. I'm a War Lady. <laughs> I'm as good as any War Man. Oh, they don't call them War Men. At that rank, they're champions. Huh? Fuck huh? you. 
Anyway, that's just a little aside about how stupid the history of D&D has been. It's, it's, uh, speaking of stupid history, number 52, the Vistani. Oh, God. The Vistani is, I mean, it's really just another in a long line of, you know, culturally deaf nonsense to be like, hey, we're going to just keep putting real world equivalents in our game and just making them be the worst. And don't worry, it's okay if it's a stereotype because they're not real. They're just exactly like a real group of people. Uh, Actually, they're exactly like all the stereotypes about a real group of people. Oh, yeah. And the fact that there were also just uh, plenty of things like the... The You're going to have to just say it. The kits kits. for, like, oh, you can be a gypsy. And I'm like, okay, why? Stop, please. Yeah, that's that's going back to second edition. They did a lot with that. They had the uh, the, all those complete X's handbooks and almost every one of them always had a gypsy variant, which was always just, oh, you have no respect for personal property. Oh, yeah, it was just the you're the thief version of whatever. Yeah, you're just whatever. Plus thief, and if you're a lady, also plus seducing people. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, they stopped writing the, those kits down back in 2nd edition, but the Vistani have never really gone away. And they are every bit as much the stereotype now as they ever have been. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, the next one, number 53, speaking of stereotypes that they still keep around for no good goddamn reason, Oriental Adventures... Yeah, now, I don't think there's a 5th edition Oriental Adventures guide yet. I'm not sure. I don't really follow up on what books have come out for 5e. Uh, but I know that in the DMG, there's variant skill uh, things for if you'd like to play an Asian campaign. And the variant that they do is introduce honor as, a, as an attribute that you can track and measure. Yes. It is. Which, instead of having a whole book, it was just like, hey, if you want to play a oriental themed game maybe make everyone so honorable (laughs) they're like we don't need an oriental adventures we've moved beyond that these days we can be racist at a much faster level (laughs) (laughs) uh we're being racist at an eighth grade level right now this is a tough one for me because when i was sure when i was a kid i loved the oa books i had uh i had the first edition one and then i had the 3.5 one which introduced a lot of shit from uh l5r legend of the five rings which i immediately discounted as the boring half of the of the 3.5 oriental adventures book because it was just like you can play a samurai or a shugenja they are both boring i mean honestly Uh, if you want someone with a better perspective on this than us go listen listen to asians represent they have an entire thing where they've been reading through oriental adventures and how incredibly bad it is right like what i was going to get at is that when i was a kid i have a lot of strong childhood nostalgia for these books but as an adult whenever i flip through them i'm like oh god what was wrong with me well you were a child and didn't know better and it was written by adults that should have yes absolutely uh using honor as a score just endless worship of the katana uh reducing women to masseuses or dragon lady stereotypes uh, those books have every possible negative aspect. And yeah, if you want to hear more, go check out Asians Represent because they have been, they have a perspective that we can't, and they've done an incredible job taking those apart. Yes, indeed. 
So there you go. Uh, number 54, initiative and attention span. Uh, this is basically boils down to turns take too long. In a lot of games, when you have analysis paralysis, you have a variety of things you need to do over the concept of each turn. And also, with a direct and written down thing that lets you know your turn's not right now, and it won't be for three more people, it's it can be hard to really give a shit about what's happening at the table. Now, this is definitely one that is, you know, more of a problem for you, given your, you know, ADHD and... Hey, this uh, isn't called Things Everyone Hates About D&D. Oh, I know. But it's, I mean, even for, like, someone like me that doesn't have that problem, it's still very hard to keep engaged when you're like, cool, I'm going to go second. And as soon as I go, I'm like, neat. Anyway, bye. <laughs> sure, I'm glad I have this phone. Yeah, this has always been a big problem for me. And I'll, I'll cop to the fact that it's mostly my problem. I mean, I've got such bad AD&D that I... Or, AD&D, excuse me. Yeah, you got AD real bad AD&D. I do have an incredible amount of AD&D products, which is bad, so that's not the best. But I have such bad ADHD that I get I get bored during my own turn. I'll be I like, mean, okay, wait, I still have a minor action? Fuck, okay, hold on. Let me just now, read my phone. <laughs> again, the, the thing with this is having the ability to influence or be engaged with other people's actions, things like that, which you definitely had in fourth edition. And hey, 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 let's bring it on back. Yeah, absolutely. Let's bring it on back. There was a, there was a lot of ways that you could either help someone during their turn. Like, Oh, you messed up, whatever here. I've got, you know, a free action that I can do to give you like a bonus or, Hey, someone did a specific action. I can have a reaction to that. That's fun. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, in fifth edition, they just sort of went back to cool. I'm going to swing my sword and then uh, I'll see you guys in what? Seven minutes. Cool. Yeah. I like, uh, as, as an example of a different way to do it, cortex, the cortex themed games, uh, have a system where the person who goes next is decided by the person who's currently going. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that because it keeps things free form and it makes it so that the the uh, combat has more of a narrative flow to it where you're kicking the uh, the camera from one person to the next, like that really great following uh, all the heroes scene in the first Avengers movie. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of thing that I think is a good new solution to just having a mechanical, this is your number, you will go at this time. Uh, as soon as you have finished your turn, you are welcome to dial out. I have I have that that's a nasty habit for me. I have a real problem with coming back to the game and being like, "How many hit points did I lose? Where did my character get pushed to?" <laughs> I hope someone I, was keeping track of me while I was gone. <laughs> Everyone who plays with me knows they have to. Oh, I know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, ultimately that one's not maybe not as big of a problem for everybody else, but it's something that rankles me, so I brought it up. There you go. Uh, all right, next one. Bonus clutter, and this is part of the problem of why turns take so long. Yeah, now, we've been waxing nostalgic about 4th edition, but honestly, that was probably the edition that had the worst in bonus clutter, where it was just, you know, 
oh, I've got a plus one from this and a plus two from that, but and I'm flanking, so that's a plus two. However, I've got uh, a penalty of three because he cast a spell on me. Now, of course, I am going to roll an additional d6 that I need to keep track of, and I will say the best thing that 5th edition did was try and get rid of that. I mean, they didn't really succeed completely, but God bless them, they tried. Yeah, absolutely. And not only do they not succeed completely, but the failures they made are ubiquitous. Like, bless is an obvious whoopsie, uh, where you get to add a d4 to all your rolls, and why would you never not have it on? Well, yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, I hope you have someone in your party that can cast bless, because it's just ridiculously useful forever right now i know that that it is commonly a thing that's levied against fourth edition and i absolutely agree fourth edition did have that problem where the game would be best played if you were playing it on like a whiteboard where you could write down all the various plus ones and minus ones and plus twos and advantages that are currently existing for a single character uh that said it is all born in the cauldron of three point x uh, 3.x was the one that finally gave us codified bonus types. So you could be like, well, I already have a, uh, you know, a, 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 a general bonus. Now I need to get one for material bonus. Uh, oh, I plus two from competence. That's good. Competence stacks with shield. So I definitely need plus two competence and plus one shield. Well, yeah, and it, I've got an armor bonus and a shield bonus and a power bonus. So mm-hmm. I've got those covered. If you cast a spell that gives me another armor bonus, I'm not going to be able to use it. So don't worry about that. Yeah. Uh, in terms of how to fix that, I mean, ultimately, I always like to do it in fourth and third edition by just saying that they're cut there. You have like five of them. You can get up to five bonuses on a turn and each one of them can come from a different source. And when you've hit those five, you're done. Because ultimately you're gilding the lily. If you're I'm plus 41 to hit now, guys. Okay. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the next one. And this one is a complaint in a variety of directions, depending on what you're into. Number 56, Psionics. Psionics has always been this just complete afterthought, even when it's included in the main book. That's correct. It's only happened once in AD&D first edition. Uh, Psionics was a, you could either be a wild talent or you could choose to be a psionicist right there in the core book. Uh, and yet they put the whole thing way at the back of the fucking book because it was like this whole optional thing, and it didn't make any goddamn sense, and it never did, and each edition has fucked up psionics as a character class option in a completely different way. Well, yeah, for some reason, they've decided that psionics, through pretty much every edition, they were like, oh, psionics should be its own very different, weird way of trying to do spells, like, we've already mm-hmm. got a spell system in there, but let's try and create a different one. And, like, right. so, either you edition. ended up with a way that it was like, oh, in second edition, unless you were psionic, you just couldn't save against psionic. So it was just like being a wizard, but better. Yeah, and then exactly. in third edition, you couldn't even cast it on someone unless they were psionic. So now it was a wizard, but worse. Yeah. First edition, inscrutable. Second edition, ludicrously overpowered. Third edition, more or less defined by multiple attribute dependency, just completely neutered and useless. Fourth edition, boring. They were just boring in fourth edition because they tried to work the PowerPoint mechanic into them, uh, which meant so that that you would just find the best power and just use it for everything forever. Why would you use a different power? You could just keep powering up the one good one with PowerPoints. Yeah, instead of being 
Like, oh, I've got all of these diverse things I can do, which is sort of what the entire point of this edition is. Uh, I've made a character that has one at will that I will just continually throw some points at if I need to. Exactly. Uh, fifth edition hasn't happened yet. There are rumors on the wind that they'll be part of the Dark Sun campaign setting. Uh, and Merle's continuously hints to the note, note or the belief that they will mostly just be wizard subclasses. Because Lord knows it's the lazy edition. I still can't believe Artificer is its own thing. Oh. So each edition from, from uh, top to bottom has been just some new variation on a weird, dumb, bad idea. And yet, personally, I love the fucking things. I've always wanted to play a cool psionic in a D&D game. Uh, I never have, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like I said, this one's the, a complaint that's going to come from different directions. Either you're like, why do people keep trying? Or in your, if you're me, why don't they ever fucking get it right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Speaking of one of the complaints about psionics, number 57, the multi-ability dependency, where, like we were saying, psionicists had, especially in 3rd edition, just a laundry list of stats you needed to have be decent. And, you know, you saw in 2nd edition where if you were even rolling, like, with the more permissive version like 1% of people maybe were paladins or druids or bards because you had to have this list of different stats at different levels. Yeah, and, the, uh, the the chance uh, of rolling a random bard in D&D using the 3D6 dropdown in 2nd edition, uh, which was their model, was like 0.0167%. Oh, yeah. It's just ridiculous. And even with the more modern point by and you can decide what to do, when you come across a class that's like, oh, you need three stats for this. It uses three different things to power its stuff. At that point, you go, yeah, but if I was a class that used two, I could put all my points into two things instead of three and just be better and not have to worry about that. Yeah, this particular problem plagued second and third edition psionics, but not so much second because uh, second edition, all the psionics just worked on anybody you threw them at anyway. So you could just pick. Basically, the problem is that there were six disciplines of psionic powers. You had psychokinesis, telepathy, metapsionics, blah blah blah. Each one of them conveniently tied to one of the six stats of D and D. That's a problem because if you want to be good at more than one of them, you need to be good at more than one stat. In second edition, you didn't need to be good at more than one of them. Uh, <laughs> it didn't fucking matter you just pick one be really good at it and every one of them had a basically just kill people spell that you could use yeah the the classes that want you to have multiple uh abilities that you're using the problem comes from it's not like they're more powerful and so you have to be reined in by having way more abilities that you're using you know you could just be a wizard and use intelligence and not give a shit. But if you're trying to play as like, Oh, I need to be a specific weird version of like a fighter mage. And now I need strength and con and int and dex. Ah, yeah, you can, you can see the difference in some editions of the game where they're like, well, what does a warlock roll to as their attack stat constitution? What the fuck? How does that make sense? It doesn't, don't worry about it. Just roll with it. Right. It's yeah. just, that's their, their puissance is drawn from their heartiness. Who cares? Uh, in older editions, that would never fly. And C&C is psionic, where they're like, well, a psionic is, their mind power is wisdom, but 
but uh, ultimately their ability to harness and direct their mind powers, probably dexterity. And if you want them to affect other people, that's gotta be charisma. And where you could just be like, no, fuck it. The whole thing's wisdom. Who gives a shit? Just make it make sense. Uh, Work in the uh, mechanically. Now I know you keep going back to psionics, but we did move on. So (laughs) fine. Multiple attribute dependency also heavily affects classes like monk, ranger, uh, paladin, Paladin in particular get needs a back in second edition needed a 17 charisma to be a paladin and it didn't really even do anything it was just a fucking requirement it was a gatekeeping yep. mechanism so there you go uh monk is usually the one in a lot of editions that gets hit with this the hardest if we're turning the sonic discussion off well yes because we were already on multi-ability dependency mm-hmm. absolutely okay number 58 random number abuse uh this is Honestly, more of a role-playing game problem than a D&D problem, but it does pop up significantly throughout D&D, especially older stuff, uh, which is where you're forced to roll randomly in situations where rolling randomly is completely fucking pointless. Hmm. So, for example, random encounter tables that where you have to roll to see if there's a random encounter, and then when you roll on the table, a large portion of the table is no random encounter. I mean... <laughs> The if we're just talking about like stuff that's pointless to roll on, then yeah, there's I think we kind of got into it with the whole like binary pass fail. But honestly, anytime you're like, oh, we've got to generate a random number for this thing. And I'm like, if there's only going to be a couple outcomes that are interesting, then don't make it so that I'm rolling on a table that says nothing happens because that's just time wasting or for example if you're looking at old second edition treasure tables and you have to roll to see what kind of weapon it is and 80 percent of the time it's a longsword and literally 80 percent of the time it's a longsword and no one in your party uses one that's a shitty roll you shouldn't be rolling that yeah or you know let's say everyone in your party's like oh we all use longswords fuck it we know that that's the case is that it's always longsword and then you're like it's a magical glaive geese arm and everyone goes god damn it <laughs> yeah, basically, uh, older D&D had a lot of random tables uh, just for the purposes of having random tables. Uh, you, you'd roll to see what time it is. You'd roll to see whether the person you were meeting was avuncular or if they were perhaps morose. And it was like, you don't need to do that. You could just on the fly be like, you meet a guy. What kind of dude is he? He fucking sucks. OK, great. We move <laughs> along. He's a shitty kind of guy. Shitty kind of guy. That's my kind of guy. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I wrote this list way too long ago, and I I genuinely do not remember exactly why I might have been mad about random number abuse when I wrote it in there. Yep. Or hell, hell, maybe you did. I don't fucking know. (laughs) Uh, Okay, number 59, definitely one of mine, ancient ass jokes. This is more of a a problem that exists in the zeitgeist of an RPG that's been going on for far too long. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. Yeah, that, that's all it is. I mean, it's not D&D's fault, because they very rarely still work in Elminster jokes into their books, but their players will. Yeah, the... I mean, the other thing is being just not even ancient-ass jokes about the game itself, but just being like, hey, guys, Monty Python's... It's, it's old, man. We don't need to keep doing it. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Monty Python's so old at this point that I don't even mind it anymore. It's kind of surprising to see someone dust it off and bring it out. It's like it's like seeing an old Victrola record player. Uh, the one that gets me nowadays is uh, South Park. 
Uh, Every time I play in a random game, somehow I always seem to sit next to the, hey guys, check out my Cartman impression guy. Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) I'm like, no man, I don't want to check out your Cartman impression. I don't want to check out a real one. That shit's tired. But it's it's uh, that kind of thing. The um, oh oh the I forget who did the specific uh, skit, but the I shoot magic missiles into the darkness, or you have to fight a gazebo. Was that or Dead Alewives? Yeah, I think it is Dead Alewives. Yeah, they did a great job at writing that joke, guys. They sure did. They did. They it was did. Them. <laughs> and by God, it's okay. You can let it go now. <laughs> Mountain Dew lacks the cultural cachet it may have once had. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to be a hypocrite here. I've said it. I've referenced it a lot. You know? Oh, yeah. I get it. It's easy. It's so easy to dip into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely true. I mean, at this point, do we really still have that cultural attachment between nerds and Mountain Dew? It's just weird green, some kind of thick soda. I mean, it's honestly, th- at this point, it's more like video gamers and a Mountain Dew than it is like table toppers. At least that's what the commercials would have you believe. Oh, hell yeah. It's like, oh, that's why they've got Mountain, Mountain Dew gaming fuel. <laughs> drink this and let's jump off a cliff and ride a dragon or whatever that commercial was. <laughs> or ride a tank and shoot at a mountain. It's all mountains. It's all mountains. With ride a mountain guys. and shoot at a dragon. I mean, I guess that makes sense. The drink is called Mountain Dew. It yeah. shouldn't surprise me too much. They keep working mountains into their their uh, advertising. It just does surprise me that they work them in in a violent con- context, like drink this and then blow the fuck out of a mountain <laughs> to suck its giant dick till it comes mountain juice. <laughs> That's Mountain Dew, baby. Oh, is that what that is? It's it, Mountain Dew is Mountain Come. Yeah, it's Mountain Dew juice. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, what would poop of a mountain be then? Like a like the classic Mountain Deuce. What would that be? <laughs> the Mountain Deuce. Ah, uh, God bless you. <laughs> Let's move on. We're not going to get better than that. <laughs> there it was. Tucker's Cobalt is next. I don't know what that is, so that's you. Sure, it's, it absolutely is. Tucker's Cobalt is an object example. It was a it was a style of writing that some guy, I think he was claiming to be like a Navy SEAL tactician or something, and he was like, oh, I make it almost impossible for my players to win any game because my Cobalt's play like navy seals they're always fighting retreat actions and setting ambushes and every one of them is in constant radio contact with the other ones and they'll do hit and fade operations and and uh they're they're just ghosts man you can't keep you can't kill them they set up everything like it's some sort of box canyon trap that they built for you and the thing is that's cute and all as a uh, as a thought experiment but when you take it into play, it's irritating that every monster plays as smart as every other monster. Well, that and you're like, man, <laughs> I'm trying to have a game here. I don't yeah, want yeah. to be like, you walk into a room, 50 different traps go off at the same time. Roll your save versus Claymore mine. What? It's what the monsters would do. They're smart. Ugh. Okay, number one, no, they're not. Cobalts are dumb as hell. That's the point of Cobalts. <laughs> They're adorable and everyone loves them, but they're little dog people. They're not. <laughs> but even then, it doesn't matter if it's kobolds or what. You've got to play each monster to its characteristics and its strengths in these games, or else you're just whacking off with your knowledge of tactics. Yeah, pretty much. And that's really what Tucker's Kobolds boils down to uh, is, is, you know, 
recognize that the game has tropes to it and, and conventions and that not every monster needs to have read uh, a tactical field manual of how to defeat insurgents. Huh. All right, number 61, Boring Magic Items. Yeah, this is definitely one that I put down because I really hate that shit. <laughs> That's fair. I and was worried. I put it down and forgot why. No, there's a a different way that it pops up in different editions that makes me angry where certain other editions would be like if you're competing for a slot like let's say mm -hmm. you know i've got boots and you find a pair of boots and all it does is like this gives you a plus one to stealth rolls you're like okay cool and then you yeah. look at another thing and you're like these boots let you walk on water and then talk to fish. You're like, oh, that's cool. However, plus one to stealth is going to come up more often, so I don't care. I'll take it. So boring magic items in the sense of boring because they're just a plus one instead of a cool effect. Right. Yeah. I, I think about that in fourth edition terms for myself, just because I spent more time in four than I did in three. But we're like, all right, I'm level six. I've got a plus one explodey flaming longsword. That's rad as fuck. I'm known as the fire sword guy. When people see me coming, they're like, that dude's got a sword with a bomb on it. That's rad. I'm level seven. This thing's a piece of garbage. I need a regular plus two sword. Yeah. And I mean, I'm even... not being efficient. <laughs> like having the the treadmill in four just be like, yeah, man, it doesn't matter if something's cool. It had better be functionally a plus one over whatever you had. <laughs> That's true. And yeah. then you also have things where in fifth edition where they're like, oh, we want to make it so that the treadmill isn't a thing. We want to make magic items rarer, more interesting. It should be a cool thing that you get like, you should be able to give it a name and have it forever. And then you still see items that are just like, hey, this is a magic item and you found it and it lets you, I don't know, hide a card up the sleeve without a roll. And you're like, okay, great. And even, even then, with 5th edition being like, okay, we're introducing the concept of bonded accuracy. We're killing the item treadmill. But we're not getting rid of plus two swords. Those are still in the fucking game. What are we, crazy? You can still get a plus two sword. Not only that, you'll fucking need it. You need that shit so you can kill werewolves and stuff. Huh. I just... So the <laughs> if, a, if a weapon or an item or anything is just a, like, in 5th edition where they're trying to tout it as like, oh yeah, magic items are rare and they should be like cool and named and then you just get like a ring of protection i'm like that's not that's fucking boring like no one's gonna tell the legend of the time i got a cloak that made me slightly harder to hit but not in any specific way right basically what needs to happen at some point is they've started introducing the concept of uh bonded accuracy and then uh inherent bonuses back in fourth edition they need to take that shit and fucking mean it like, really, you're never going to find a plus one sword because that's not a thing. Instead, when you find a magic sword, it does something rad. Yep. And that's that's what I would like. That would be you neat. You want to move on? To, okay, so the next one is number 62, Wish Language. Which is just so well known at this point of... I mean, even in the spell itself, when it tells the DM to be like, Hey, hey, if your player doesn't say it right, f fuck them up. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I don't remember if fifth edition is currently doing that, uh, but the other editions that I've read that did have wish in it, it was always written that way. It was like, oh, the the caster may spend some years of his life and thousands of XP and a magic diamond, and in exchange he may wish for a thing, but oh, beware ye, for your wish will be granted. Uh, and sometimes you may not have thought of what you were wishing for. Note to DM, they definitely didn't fuck with them. Fuck with them really bad. Oh, yeah. And even in 5th edition, it still has that, because every edition of Wish, uh, except for 4th edition, has (laughs) (laughs) essentially, here is a list of things that are safe to do. Like, you can just cast Wish and do this. Oh, you can get, you know, up to 20 creatures, they regain all of their hit points. Cool. Great. That doesn't require any bartering you don't have to ask mother may i it's an effect you can do however if you want to go beyond the scope of this you are allowed but buyer beware (laughs) i played most of my second and third edition DD. i played with a group of boy scouts uh that was my, my my old san diego boy scout troop and when wishes came into play i i was playing with a very nerdy group of kids and they would like write these things up they'd hand each other fucking contracts oh, careful yeah. language they'd spend days passing them back and forth between the party members to get everything right and be like well wait hold on what if the dm reads this this way okay we've got to write down that he can't inside the wish and at a certain point you'd think they'd be like well by the way guys there's a house rule that w- wishes can't be more than i don't know seven pages in length <laughs> well no, no more the, ca- caveats the, the big thing was like, I had a DM who was like, oh, a wish has to be able to be uh, one sentence long. And I was like, my my motherfucker, you have never <laughs> read Joyce. Let's do this. Let me introduce you to the concept of Thunder Wishes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, all my wishes are based from based on James Joyce stuff. That's why every time I, I wish, it's just for my wife's glorious farts. Yep. <laughs> It was a race, John, and I won. I know. I know. <laughs> it's fine. As soon as you said Thunder Wishes, I was like, ooh, I can't wait until we get to the fart joke. <laughs> and that's the James Joyce jokes. Ugh. Uh, but uh, ultimately, this whole kind of wish is a combat mechanic where you're like, oh, we got to play Mother May I, and the DM's job is to catch you up in something. It's fun if that's the whole game, but it's not the whole game. A wish is just one spell cast by one guy once, and it should just do the fucking thing and move along. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it should just be the list of things that are safe to do, and don't just don't let your players do that. If you're like, oh, you can wish for whatever, but maybe nothing happens, or maybe it fucks you. You're like, no, don't. I'm I'm spending resources to do a thing. Just let me do a thing. Right. Yeah, so ultimately, I don't know. How would you like to fix Wish overall? Oh, like I said, just get rid of the part where it can do anything, but you have to make up a thing. Give it a laundry list of abilities. That's it. That's fine. That's fair. I can I can see that. that I think that's how uh, Baldur's Gate did it, because you could eventually get Wish in Baldur's Gate too. and I think it was just like, which one of these seven things would you like? Oh, exactly. Because at that point, you can say... Well, why would I have Wish if I can't do anything? Well, because it's a spell that lets you do an ass load of different things, so it's super versatile. Exactly. That makes perfect sense. All right, number 63, hit points. I can't believe it took us this long. Oh, I know. It's just, 
the argument about is this meat or is this a like version of how tired you are or whatever. I you just, want to hear something uh, truly, absolutely infuriating, John? Both arguments are present in the PHB in 5th edition. Of course they are. Because they are pages. not able to take a stand, they must hedge every bet. <laughs> I don't think they meant to in this case. It, they're, it's not like they're near each other. It's not like hit points could be one of these two things. There's just one reference on one page where it's like, hit points represent the character's will to fight, blah, blah, blah. The one that's been universally understood to be correct since Gygax. And then the asshole one shows up somewhere else where it's just... Uh, HP is meat that gets punched off you. You're a person with meat stapled to them all over the place. And when enough of your meat falls off, so you fall down. Yep. It it doesn't affect how you move or fight when meat falls off you. But if you lose all the meat on you, then you're done. Mm-hmm. If someone cuts Lady Gaga's meat dress off of you, you're out of the fight. <laughs> And ultimately, all the way back in AD&D, it was like, what What are hit points? Well, hit points represent supernatural toughness. They represent will to fight. They represent drive, tactical acumen, and experience. And also the wounds that you're taking. They're all those things all at once. Specifically, because if they were all those things separated, it would take fucking forever to track damage. Yeah. And I mean, some systems decided, yeah, we would just want our hit points to be your actual flesh. And if you're doing like a, you know, white wolf style thing, we're like, yeah, you've got a damage track and you get more fucked up the more damage you take because it is representing physical pain. Sure. Great. Then do that. But the people who are like hit points mean meat. I'm like, really? Because if I have 90 hit points and I'm at one, I feel like something should be wrong with me. And yet it isn't. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean ultimately this question was answered for us by the the racist fundamentalist dickwad Gygax himself when when in AD&D because he said, "Look, here's the thing. Uh a fighter that's high level might have 75 hit points and an ox probably has 14. And yet it takes way more sword strikes to kill the fighter than the ox when in real life it would take way more sword strikes to kill an ox than any fighter. This is because hit points represent a lot of shit." I'm Gary Gygax, and I couldn't have just said the last part of that. Huh. Uh, and, and so we've always known, and yet we still see all these, oh, warlords can't shout hands back on discussions. Yeah, well, fuck you. Yeah, fuck you it's too, n- buddy. It's not a hand that they're shouting back on, and also, if it is, fuck you, it works anyway. I don't care. <laughs> I keep meaning to do that. We need to make that a thing where we write our own 5th edition supplemental material and throw it on drive-thru RPG, where... Uh, it's the new warlord, and its power is to shout hands onto people, and they don't have to be hands that were fall- that fell off. Oh, yeah. You're just like, hey, man, you want an extra hand? Here you go. It's temp yeah, just- HP. <laughs> yeah, it's temp HP. It's an extra minor action. It's whatever. I shout extra hands onto people. I'm the hand shouter. <laughs> don't even need to call it the warlord. We could just call it the hand shouter just to be an asshole about it. Indeed. All right, next one. Uh, already mentioned today, gold is essentially worthless after the first couple of levels. This one is actually specific to 5th edition. They didn't give you anything to do with gold. No, there's, you know, much less as far as, you know, ridiculous material components that are like you need to spend 10,000 gold on a diamond that then turns to dust when you cast a spell. Uh, there's not really, because we've left behind a long time ago, the idea of like hirelings and extra people and like going into a dungeon with you know your three players and 27 different people you hired 
money after you have the mundane things you want as far as like, okay, maybe I'm the fighter and I actually did have to save to get the expensive ass plate I wanted, but now I I have it. That's the one thing. Yeah. (laughs) And once you have it, eh, who cares? At that point, you just get to say, oh, uh, erase X amount of gold off of my sheet. And it means that I live a cool lifestyle. Is that affecting gameplay? It is not. Yeah, I remember seeing a complaint a while back from someone who was saying, help my player. This is like a Reddit, help me fix my game thing. And it was like, help, my players have quit adventuring for a month so they can build a castle. What should I do? How can I get them back on track? And all of the answers were, let them build the fucking castle. They have a ton of spare money. Let them make a cool castle. Who do you give a shit if they have a castle or not? They still have to go into dungeons eventually. Yeah. If if your players decide, I want to build a castle, cool. They have just told you what they would like this game to do. And yeah. if afterwards they're like, oh, we don't want to adventure anymore. Our characters all want to stay in a castle. Great. That means your players don't want to play anymore. <laughs> you finished the game. Congratulations. Ha- hang the mission accomplished banner. You did it. Start a new game or play something else. Your characters won. They did it. Okay, now, speaking of the fighter having to save to buy shit still, people trying to make a realistic economy inside of D&D is fucking stupid. Oh, my God. Anytime someone's like, well, you know, uh, in this region, a metal sword would be worth less than in that one. And, of course, uh, a gem that's worth 5000 for a spell component. Well, if I have a gem and I tell my friend... I'll buy that for 5000 then isn't that worth 5000 <laughs> Right. Yeah, oh, you need a spell to cast... Oh, God, I hate that fucking equivalency trick. But no, apparently there's a universal gem standard throughout the cosmos of Dungeons & Dragons, which sets the value of diamonds. Yep. <laughs> there is a constant metaphysical value to certain things. Uh, yeah. So this one comes up to me as a balance issue where a first level wizard already has everything a first level wizard will ever need, but a, a fighter that plans to move to heavy armor will need to accumulate some 15 to 2,500 gold. And if the DM wants to run a low gold campaign, he's, or they are more or less bound and determined to fuck over just the fighter. Pretty much. And it doesn't need to be that way. It should just be like, all right, fighter at level four. Magic armor descends from God's dick and lands on you and you have it and you don't need to get in a fight about this. Yay. And yeah, you're right. The, the whole thing, uh, the uh, I just was reading some Dungeon or Dragon article about how to enhance the economics of a, uh, a D&D setting. And it was like, oh, if you're if you come out of a dungeon with a piece of art or something, you're not going to be able to sell that to some schmo in a local hamlet. You need to go to a major metropolitan city. Oh, and even yeah. then, there's a 10% chance per day that you can find an art dealer snooty enough to be interested. Yeah, it was the same thing with, oh, did you want to sell that plus one longsword that nobody wants? Well, this is a magic item. Obviously, your local podunk town isn't going to want to buy that. Why would they? <laughs> What is that, a jerkied half-orc dick? Those are worthless here. However, if you keep it in your mouth until you reach Thay, it can be sold for upwards of seven copper. Ugh. It's pointless. Don't make complicated money. It should be interesting, not complicated. How about that? How about that? If you're like, hey, there's a bunch of cool pieces of art and and some of the money you found is in the form of a rare opal, it, it, it shouldn't be like, 
and no one will buy that opal. Ha ha, I have smoothly tricked thee. It should be like, there's a cool opal. That's a rad storytelling element. Good job. I'll just write down the value of that. Yep. Thank you for enhancing my game. Yeah, it was neat that I found a pile of gems. That sounds very cool. However, I'm just going to write down the value of it because I don't want to deal with your shit. <laughs> All right, multiple skills to do one thing. Number 66, this is the eternal punishing of Marshall players trying to pull off Errol Flynn shit. Uh, man, did we when already do this one? I don't know, man. We've done 65 of these. Uh, I, I, I have no idea for sure whether I, I'll tell you what we didn't do this one in this episode. Great. How about that? How about, How about that? that? <laughs> How about it? It's, it's dumb when your player, when you're uh, a player in your party is like, I have a cool idea. I'll jump up onto the table and then, uh, uh, jump on a barrel and barrel roll it around like a, like I'm log balancing and I'll use that and to, to, to get across the, the hot lava of the ground. And like, and then the DM has to be like, great. That'll be six individual pass fail skill rolls, please. Yeah, that or when one of your people is like, ooh, I've got a cool idea to do a thing. And someone says, oh, I actually have the specific ability that lets me do that thing. So technically you shouldn't be able to because you don't. That is true. I mean, granted, I think that's a different uh, that that might be something we didn't put in here. Uh, things that create uh, uh, powers that create a state where no one can do an obvious thing. Yes, the. Is is also a, a big problem in these games, but you're right. It de it definitely does fit in as well. Um, but but basically, rule of cool should always apply, and, and I prefer it when it does. But older game, the older the game, the more they they tend to be like, hey, look, if you want your character to swing from a chandelier, that's an athletics check followed by a tumbling check to land correctly, and then you still got to make your attack roll. Mm hmm. And I'm thinking. But there's no reward there. There's no cool thing you get for having taken all these extra risks. When you could have just been like, I walk over to the fucking guy and hit him, I guess. That's one attack roll and it does damage if I succeed. Great. So there's me. That's my thought. All right. Okay, next one up, John. Combat healing. Now, a bad idea. Maybe <laughs> always a bad, bad idea. idea. <laughs> In 5th edition, there is a strong drive towards not bothering to heal in combat. Uh, this I is mean, because... if, you, if you can, don't. Exactly. You heal to keep someone at at least 1 HP, and that's all it's for. If someone drops below an HP, you bring them back up, because getting up is completely trivial. Mm -hmm. uh, they, don't even, they don't even lose a turn or anything. And it, there's no reason to keep people topped off or even moderately healthy, because there is no difference between perfectly healthy and beat to shit. There's only a difference between, uh, between I have hit points and I don't. Hmm. And, and for that reason, the best healing you could ever do is just fuck up the enemy some more because a dead enemy doesn't do damage. Yep. And, and I feel like that takes away part of the old fun of what, I mean, you still have clerics and healing bards and shit in the game. I uh, mean, you do. Yeah. But so you just don't want to interact with that during a game yeah instead you're like all right how many of my spell slots do i have to erase during this this uh rest session and also are you telling me i have to roll my hit dice that's not a good feel what? uh so yeah combat healing has been taken from what it was in fourth edition which was a way to reward players who who were healers uh for doing cool shit on their turn mm -hmm. remember that remember how Remember how healing as a warlord or a cleric was like, I shoot a rad laser at it, 
eviscerates the 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 skeleton and also a pulse of it goes out and heals my friend so i didn't even lose the chance to do a cool thing on my turn but cool shit still happened anyway yep i got to just do it as either a minor action that didn't take up my turn or as a special writer on a thing i was already doing yeah that was fucking awesome and i miss it yeah oh well there you have it yep Okay, number 68. I don't know if I wrote this one or you did. Do you still want to do that? Mechanics as object lessons or partial barriers? This goes a lot into the whole, uh, like, the old school dungeon idea of, like, uh, you come to a room and it has, you know, three panels and a door. And you're like, okay, I go over to the door. Are you sure? <laughs> so it's just... It's just uh, the game of DM player chicken. Yeah. A lot of the times where there's some sort of mechanic where it's like, okay, uh, I as a player think it would be cool to do this sort of thing. All right. Well, it turns out that if you try and do that, uh, you get an electric shock and take 2d6 damage. Are you sure you want to try and do your cool thing now? Oh, okay. I see where you're coming from. It's... It's basically preemptive punishing players for having had good ideas or interesting things about their character. I mean, it's basically both, whether you're trying to make it so that you punish people for going outside of your basic thing where, you know, you set up an entire series of uh, traps and punishments where you're like, all right, here's my dungeon. And if someone tries to be like, oh, you saw like a crack in a wall, did you try to open the crack to get to the next room and skip a whole bunch of this well it turns out if you hit the wall then it annihilates you like that's bullshit but also yeah. every time any gm tells you do you want to do that i just want to slap them how about just the general advice that is treated like a fun meme joke in the D D world of hey are your players too comfortable roll some dice behind a board that'll put them on edge yeah yeah <laughs> The, I mean, even just asking, like, okay, my character goes up to a door. Oh, do you touch the door? And you're like, ah, uh, the advice where it's like, even if there's no trap, ask them this so your players will freak out. I'm like, don't, don't do that. I don't want to freak out. I don't have time to not freak or, or to freak out. That's what I do all the time now anyway. Every time I open up Twitter, I'm freak out. I'm, I'm all set on freaking out. Thank you. Man. <laughs> you are freaking out. I'm good. I don't need some friend of mine being like, it seems like Jeff isn't tense enough. Yeah. I really wanted to bog this down and make it so that the next hour of our day was spent with one player going, all right, I'm going to stand behind you and you hold this stick. Now, at the end of the stick is a chicken. And you're like, please don't. Don't make me do this. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all right. Let's bring it on home with the... Uh, I'm pretty sure the worst set of rules in every edition of D&D there's ever been, grappling. Yep. Grappling has, since they were introduced, been the most convoluted and ignored rules for any edition of D&D. I've only rarely had times where some player was like, you know what? I made a burly dude. I want to grab that guy. And inevitably someone's like, well, I know there are grappling rules. What the fuck? And then they'll go try and find it and be like, okay, what do you have to do? What do you have to? All right. So first you're going to make a strength roll and they're going to make 
a dex roll, and then once you've made that, you both make strength roll, and you're like, why is this happening? Why did you not just hit a guy? If you would like to move them while you're holding them, then you need to make a move roll, which they will counter with a don't move roll. And I'm like, what are we doing? This This is the longest given thing that anyone could do with their turn. Yeah, grappling ends up, instead of becoming an action you take, it's congratulations, you've opened up the grappling minigame, and now every time it's your turn, you have to play this stupid minigame while everyone else watches. Yeah, the one time in in all of D&D history where it's been any kind of interest to anybody is 4th edition had a grappling fighter who could be like, my whole thing is just that I fight with one hand free and I use it for choke slams and shit. But because of the way 4th edition worked, all that meant was some of my powers have bare hand as their their, uh, keyword and they do the shit in the box and it doesn't take fucking forever to figure out. Well, yeah, instead of it being, hey, there's... (laughs) grappling is its entire own set of rules with like two pages worth of caveats and roles and things that happen it's just oh what did you do oh part of this was a grapple what does that mean it means the rules that it just said in the power i threw them down or i did a little extra damage whatever i think my favorite example of when these rules have been bad is in second edition where there was also the boxing rules where you'd, you'd be like, all right, I roll a d20 and I check against a, a chart of 20 potential punches I can do. My opponent rolls a different d20 to, and checks it against a defense chart. And ultimately, it's completely pointless because most of these do zero to two damage. Mm-hmm. It's, bas- it's basically watching Twitch plays punch out. It's a fucking waste of everybody's time. <laughs> Pretty much. And that's what so, every single person who said, I want to grab that guy, found out. When they did, they looked up mm-hmm. the grappling rules, realized, oh, this is just complicated and a bad idea. All right, never mind. And at this point, they've become such a kind of, by themselves, sacred cow of bad shit in the game that you can tell a player's a troll when they show up to a random game and they're like, yes, I would like to grapple. And they like slap that page of the book open on the table and the rest of the table's going to be like, oh, God damn it. No, no, please don't. <laughs> It's in the rules that I may grapple. <laughs> ah, now you have suffered from the grappled condition. <laughs> it's a grapple. Uh, there you have it. That's the end of it. That's everything. That's all 69 things we hate about D&D. That's it. We did it. That's we it. got we through it. it. We have contractually finished our <laughs> obligations. Yeah, that's that's the tone we wanted to take throughout these episodes, was aggrieved and irritated that people were holding us to task. How dare you make us do a thing we said we would do? We, don't you, re- please respect celebrity privilege next time. <laughs> I promise we'll get together in our mansions and sing some song for you. <laughs> that's what we'll do. Absolutely. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll recreate a movie uh, on <laughs> on Twitch or something. But please, in the future, don't make us do whole episodes of shit just because it was our idea that we promised to do and you had nothing to do with. I know. God. Ugh, so mad. Otherwise, go play other games. There's lots of them, and they're really good. Yeah, did you know that other things besides D&D exist? There's so many. There's so goddamn many. There are tons of awesome games out there. Lots more come out every day. And the further they are from D&D, the better. So please, if there's one thing you take away from all three of these episodes, it's play other games. Yeah. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. 
And uh, I guess we'll see you next time we do some crazy-ass bonus content. Have a good one. D20s. Alignment grids. Several things. Several things. <laughs>